Open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll read verses 7 to 11. Here we will study the, that Christ must be obeyed, believed and obeyed, or experience the wrath of God. That is Christ or the wrath of God. Hebrews 3, 7 to 11. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we will believe that these words are the words of the Holy Spirit, that we will contemplate what they mean, and what they mean not only in the Bible, but in our own Christian life. We pray that we will be those who not only hear this word, but do. Not only hear and understand this word, but believe them. And not only hear and understand these words, but preach these faithfully to others. For this is the true word of God. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. This topic of the wrath of God is really an unknown topic. It is scarcely known by many people. The reason being that pastors, especially popular pastors, evangelists, preachers, the popular ones, do not actually talk about this. They don't talk about this, and rather their introductions or their sermons are full of statements such as, God loves you, or God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, God is a loving God. He, his love is unconditional. He has unconditional love towards all of us. And even they will say, God is good all the time. All the time. Now, there are elements of truth in each of these statements. We know that. The Bible teaches that God is love. The Bible teaches that God is good. It teaches those truths. The problem is, when popular pastors say these things, their emphasis is so much on this that they neglect the sin issue. They neglect the wrath of God. They neglect the righteousness of God. They actually neglect to talk about God as He really is, as He truly is, they neglect to talk about us and our sin as they truly are. Our sins as they really and truly are before a righteous and holy God. And then they also pervert and twist words such as love, good, grace. They pervert these words to their own ends because they have monetary ends, they have popular ends, they have all kinds of sordid gain purposes in their preaching of love, goodness, and grace, when in fact they distort what the Bible means by those words. Well, our passage brings us head on, straight on, with this issue or this topic of the wrath of God. And I submit to you that if preachers would preach this, we would see that there would be some of us who would truly repent of our sins. Truly repent of our sins. Because that is the main issue of the day. That has been the main issue of the day ever since Adam and Eve sinned 
in the Garden of Eden. We would truly repent of our sins, but we would also see, though we will see some repentance, we would see a lot of people expose themselves for being enemies of God. And they will say, well, if God is that way, then I cannot worship a God like that. If, God, if that's the way God is in the Bible, I want nothing to do with that. I'm going to go to another church. I'm going to go to another religion. I'm going to believe in another philosophy that will give me the kind of comfort and peace and false assurance that I'm seeking. And really, it is false assurance. They console themselves with lies. They console themselves with fantasies, things that are not true about the true and living God. They want to believe in order to avoid turning away from their sins and therefore escaping and avoiding the wrath of God, which culminates in eternal punishment in hell. This is the issue of the day, and it's the issue of every day. Let's see in our passage where the apostle actually does talk about this issue and its relationship, not only to the wilderness generation, but also to our generation. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. He has just explained how Christ is superior to Moses. Not that Moses, in and of himself, was a wicked man, but as even a righteous man Moses was by the righteousness of Christ, Christ is superior to him. So now, we who hear, hear the gospel of Christ, we should not, in other words, behave like the wilderness generation. That's his basic point. Verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, the passage he's quoting was written by David in Psalm 95. Yet he does not cite David as the author or the great prophet who wrote the psalm. Not because he's trying to diminish David and David's inspiration, but what he's trying to do is heighten the fact that these are the words of God. He's trying to heighten the fact that we should consider what's about to be said the words of God because these are the words of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who spoke through David, as it says in Psalm 20, or 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. The Spirit of God um, is what, who guided David to write the words that David wrote. So, the Holy Spirit wrote. And the moment we know this, then it's an issue of authority. And it's an issue of whether we are going to submit to this authority. It's easy for us to relegate writings, and even the writings of the Bible, to mere men. To mere men who are fanatical in their religion. No, that's not the way we should consider it. These are the words of the Holy Spirit, therefore we cannot dismiss them. And we cannot say that they are of no value or lesser value or anything of that nature. And we cannot say, that was in the Old Testament. This is an argument many people make that we should not consider holiness, righteousness, wrath of God, turn, turning from sin, any kind of repentance, because that kind of theology was for the Old Testament period. Then why does the apostle quote it and say it's applicable to his generation? Because we're in the New Testament. And he's quoting it in the New Testament because it's also applicable in the New Testament. That's why he's doing it. Not only do we see it here, but we see it throughout this letter that he speaks of the wrath of God 
or the authority of God from the Old Testament also reflected in the New Testament. Another example, a very clear example in Hebrews to show the contemporary nature of what he's saying, applicable to us in the New Testament era, is Hebrews 10, 26. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Notice the current nature of what he's saying here. He says in verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully, we, who are the we? The we are those who hear about the Son of God, who hear about His blood, who hear about the Holy Spirit, here called the Spirit of grace, who hear about judgment, and who do not turn away from our sin. He says, we only have uh, a terrifying expectation of judgment. The fury of fire, that's all we have. And we have vengeance. We have God judging us. And we have a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the only thing that awaits us, is that kind of judgment. And also observe in verse 29, was the law of Moses more severe than the covenant of Christ? What is more severe according to Hebrews 10, 29? It tells us how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? He tells us that Moses could only put somebody to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Certain sins and crimes in the Old Testament were worthy of death, and that was the worst that any human could do against another. In that case, the authorities, the governmental authorities, Moses and Aaron as their head, that's the only thing that they could do. That's the worst that they could do. Put somebody to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. But what will God do according to this passage? In the New Testament, he will send us to hell because there's only a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. He's speaking of the fires of hell. So then, when he says in chapter 3, verse 7, the Holy Spirit says, we ought to consider this as not only authoritative because it's coming from the Holy Spirit of God, but also applicable to us in the New Testament. He says it in the present tense. He says it in the New Testament. He says it in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. There are many examples, not only in this letter, but throughout the New Testament, of the wrath of God being written about, being preached, and the way to avoid it is to believe in Christ. Furthermore, Hebrews 3, verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, 
Today, if you hear his voice, even though David writes this, David lived about 1000 BC. Moses lived about 1500 BC. Moses was the one who experienced the generation of the wilderness, those people who left Egypt on the way to the land of Canaan, and he spent 40 years with them in the wilderness. Even though Moses was the one who experienced these rebellious people, David, as one who's writing 500 years later, David says to his own generation, today, if you hear his voice, today, David understood the contemporaneous and applicable nature of the writings of Moses. And here, our apostle in Hebrews understands that a thousand years later, from David to him, the writings are still applicable. They have relevance to us. And they are saying to us, today, even our generation, because we know that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away, Jesus said. Matthew 24, 35. Therefore, we ought to consider what these words mean for us and repent. He says, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, few throughout history have heard the audible voice of God. We do know that the prophets and the apostles heard the audible voice of God. But here, our passage does not mean the audible voice of God, though that is true for a few individuals. Our passage is talking about the Word of God. It's talking about the writings of the Holy Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Whenever you read, whenever you hear this word read, and whenever you hear it preached and its interpretation correctly explained, this is the Word of God and you are hearing the voice of God. You are hearing the voice of God whenever you read it, whenever you hear it read, and whenever you hear it correctly explained to you whether from a preacher or from a friend on an individual basis, however you are hearing it, you are hearing the word of God. Don't consider it anything less. And then don't make excuses by saying, well, that's the preacher's interpretation. Well, that's your opinion. That's the way you take that passage. But that's not what it really means. No, we know what it means. We know what, what it means when it says, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. We know what it means when it says you shall not murder. We know what it means when it says you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. We know what that means. And there are many such commandments and explanations in the Bible about uh, any number of issues that are quite clear and evident. So let's not be making excuses and say, well, that's the opinion of so-and-so. No, figure it out yourself because it is the voice of God. It is the word of God. Let us not make excuses and deflect from the issues and say, no, that's his opinion. It is his voice. So, what did the people do in Moses' time? What was David telling his own generation? And what is our apostle telling us now? Verse 8 says, Do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. And it says in verse 10, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. Verses 8 and 10, they have a hard heart 
and their heart always goes astray. If we were to read the accounts in the book of Exodus, such as Exodus chapter 17, and in the book of Numbers, especially in the book of Numbers chapters 11 to 20, if you were to do a Bible study of those passages, you would see time after time after time, rebellious people, ungrateful people, people who are complaining and bickering and moaning and groaning about their circumstances throughout the wilderness. They had a hard heart, and they always had it that way. It wasn't temporary. They had temporary rays of sunshine that they displayed, but they regularly had, always had, a rebellious, evil, hard heart. That's what they had. It's demonstrated quite clearly and plainly in that passage, in those passages in Exodus and Numbers. Not only is it there, however, David understood that his own people were that way. And even here in Hebrews, Hebrews is preaching this letter. This is a word of exhortation, it's called, in chapter 13, 22. This word of exhortation for us is a reminder that we are also this way. We are also people in our natural condition. When we are born into this world, we have a rebellious heart. We have a dark heart. We have an uncircumcised heart. Our hearts are closed. These are metaphors that the Bible uses to describe what is our spiritual condition, what's inside of us, what our souls are like. They are alienated from God. They are hostile toward God. They do not want to obey the law of God. And occasionally we do here or there because of our conscience or because we are trying to impress somebody or we're trying to prevent some disaster happening in our life. But inside we know our heart is filthy. It's polluted. This is the way the people were. And that's the way we all are unless we are converted. Which naturally raises the question, who is the one who will convert us? It has to be God. If Adam, when he was created perfectly in the Garden of Eden, if Adam and Eve, if they could not obey one commandment of God, being perfect, having original righteousness, if they could not obey one commandment of God for one day, what makes us think we can obey the commandments of God for one day? For one moment, apart from the grace of God, by the Spirit of grace changing us. We have not just one commandment in a perfect nature like Adam and Eve. What do we have? We have a sinful nature. We have a depraved nature. After Adam and Eve's sin, we are all like they are after their sin. And not only that, God gave us the two greatest commandments, to love God with all our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. He gave us the Ten Commandments. And he also gave the people of Israel 613 commandments in the law of Moses. Who was able to raise his hand and say, I have done it all? No, none of us can. And this proves the point that just as the generation of the wilderness, so are we. We have a hard heart and it takes a miraculous work of God by the Spirit of God, using the Word of God to produce a child of God. It takes the Spirit to use the Word to produce a true 
child of God, adopted child of God. It will not happen by human effort. It will not happen by human will. God changes our will, but it does not happen because of our will. It happens because God sends the Spirit from heaven to conform us and to transform us and give us a tender heart, an open heart, a circumcised heart, a heart that is soft and not hard and stony anymore, that will desire the things of God. That's what we need. And that's what did not happen to the wilderness generation. What did they do instead? How are they characterized? Look at verse 9. Instead it says, Where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. At the end of verse 8 it says, It's the day of trial in the wilderness. A trial or, in verse 9, a test. Your Bible might also say, they tempted me. Whatever term we use, trial, test, tempt. They tried God. They tempted God. They tested God. Not that God is weak and fickle and can be tempted to sin. That's not what it means. It means that they attempted to do that. They presented with their presumption things to God, challenges to God, in order to trip up God and to make themselves look right and God look wrong. They complain all the time. However, notice, they saw my works for 40 years. They saw the works of God. He doesn't mean regular works, that the sun rose every day, though that would be included. His focus is actually the miracles. Didn't Moses present miracles to Pharaoh? And didn't the elders of the people see those miracles that he presented to Pharaoh? Did Moses not perform ten miraculous signs or miracles against Egypt? Most of them were against Egypt. Most of them the people of Israel did not experience, right? Did he not do that? Did Moses, by the power of God, not split the Red Sea so that they walked across the sea on dry land? Not only did they walk across it on dry land, a true miracle in time and space, in history, Not only did he do that, they walked across on dry land, but the Egyptian army following them, chasing them up to that point, they were brazen enough to go through that Red Sea when it was dry. But then suddenly God brought the two walls of water to engulf them and to drown them. So they and their chariots and horses all went to the bottom of the sea. They were all drowned. Exodus chapters 14 and 15 describe this. Historical accounts. They saw all that. And then when they get into the wilderness, what did they have for 40 years? They had manna, miraculous bread, that would be given to them on the ground that they needed to collect six days out of seven. And on the sixth day, they would have twice as much so that they could eat on the Sabbath day without working. Then they wanted meat. They complained about meat. So God in His grace and goodness and love, what did He provide for them? He provided for them quail. He provided for them meat to eat. They complained about this or that, and yet God provided. They complained about water, and God provided water for them all along the path. Also, they were upset, and they complained about their enemies. 
They thought their enemies would be too much for them. And then God showed them that he can defeat their enemies as well. Everything. They complained about everything. They were bitter people. They were selfish people. They were thinking about themselves. They were not reflecting on the nature of God. They were not reflecting on the goodness of God. They were not reflecting on the power of God. They were not thankful for all of these things, for what he has shown them and displayed before their very eyes in front of millions upon millions of people. They all saw this. We know it's millions upon millions because they had at least 600,000 young men, 20 years old and upward, ready for warfare. They had at least 600 young men ready for warfare. At least 600,000 of them, which means that the total population had to be in the millions of people. Millions of people were eyewitnesses of these numerous miracles. And yet, they didn't believe. They didn't believe the gospel. They didn't believe in Christ. They didn't believe in the unseen spiritual world. What did they do instead? What was their problem? Which is a perennial human problem. It's a universal and perennial human problem. What is that? We are so fixated on the physical. The physical consumes us. Whatever our eyes see, whatever our ears hear, and all of our senses, we are consumed with the physical. When we are consumed with the physical, it blinds us to the spiritual. That is the basic problem. That was the problem of Israel. And Israel is not just Israel. Again, every nation of mankind that dwells on the face of the earth, this is a fundamental human problem. It's a malady that infests all of us. They would not see beyond the physical. They wanted fun, fame, and fortune. They wanted peace, progeny, and a pot belly. These are the things that consume them. They would not think about spiritual things. They had Christ preach to them, as we saw last time. Verse 5, Hebrews 3, 5. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Moses preached Christ. Hebrews eleven twenty six. Moses himself considered the reproach of Christ greater riches, for he was looking to the reward. He was not looking to the earthly reward. He was not looking to live a long life. He was not looking to live in the land of Canaan as such, but he was looking for these things to the extent that they had a relationship to eternity, to the extent that the land of Canaan, the land of promise, signified heavenly blessings, signified the life to come, signified the fact that Christ would deliver us from slavery to sin as they were delivered from slavery in Egypt and that they would experience the joys of heaven and the presence of God as they would enter the land of Canaan. To the extent those things signified Christ and eternal matters, that's what Moses preached. But the people rejected it. They only wanted the here and now. They only wanted the physical and they had no concern or little concern for the life to come for 40 years. This should remind us that we cannot 
We cannot use human inventions, human fabrications, when we preach the gospel. When we preach and teach and explain the gospel to people, we should not use human inventions. Because the Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It does not say faith will come if you rile up the emotions of the people. It does not say faith will come if you put on a clown show. It does not say faith will come if you distribute candy or if you serve pizza. It does not say that faith will come if you are a, a very persuasive and eloquent and sophisticated preacher and teacher. It does not say faith comes like that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. In fact, the Bible says the very opposite. And when I came to you, brethren, and I, I did not come to you with superiority of speech and of wisdom, when I made known to you the testimony of God. For I made nothing known to you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You see, human inventions means wisdom of men. That's not the way people are saved from sin. That's why we have, in so many places today, in the United States and around the world, so many places we have this superficial, easygoing Christianity. It's a superficial Christianity. That's why there's so much sin and evil that is perpetrated, even by people whose names are John and Elizabeth, who should know better. They are perpetrating this and defaming the name of Christ. They are blaspheming the name of Christ because they don't have a true conversion. They don't have it because they are fixated on this word. Now, what does God say furthermore about it? Verse 10, Hebrews 3.10. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in, my heart, in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He says in verse 10 that he was angry with them, and in verse 11, he was wrathful. These are synonyms of the same thing. Now, God himself is not one who huffs and puffs. He's not one who sleeps and eats. He's not a God like that. But when he uses these terms, he's using these as metaphors of spiritual truths. That is... He is displeased and despises our sin and will punish our sin. He is displeased and despises our sin and he will indeed punish our sin. That's what he's signifying by the use of these terms. This is the part of God, the attribute of God, that people do not want to hear. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to understand it. They don't want to understand its relationship to themselves. They only want to hear love, peace, joy, goodness, happiness, grace. They only want to hear these kinds of words. And then they want to invest in those words definitions, meanings that the Bible does not give to those words. So that love becomes a trump card. You cannot ever preach against anybody's sin and talk about the righteousness of God and the wrath of God because that's unloving. That's ungracious. You can never call somebody and expect somebody to turn from his sin because you're judging. That's wrong, they say, when they have no clue about what is actually said in the Bible about those issues. They just blurt and spurt whatever they want when actually they should focus on what the Bible 
means by these words. So, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. God does indeed inflict punishment upon those who perpetrate evils in this world. That's why it said in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, about Jesus himself. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, that Jesus himself is the one who will come from heaven. He shall be revealed from heaven, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. Revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. See, when he comes, it is Jesus who will inflict this punishment upon those who do not know him, those who will not obey the gospel, those who do not desire to know God through the word of God. Jesus is the one. But in our day, Jesus is portrayed as some kind of a a grandfather or even a great-grandfather who barely does anything but says, no, 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 little children. No, that's not the way he is. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is one who will inflict this punishment. It says, furthermore, in Revelation, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16, 616, notice this irony of Revelation 6.16. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They say in that passage, these people who are being afflicted with the punishment of God, they would rather have the rocks fall on them the mountains fall on them, than to experience the wrath of God. And it is the wrath of the Lamb. When we think of Jesus as the Lamb, we think of Him as a quiet and gentle and helpless creature. We think of Him that way, which ha- it has an element of truth to it. But there's another part of His nature, His wrath. And not only is there His wrath, it says, Who is able to stand? Who is able to withstand his power? Who is able to do that? The Egyptians thought they could withstand the power of God. They went through brazenly through the Red Sea, but they couldn't withstand it. The the people who persecuted Jesus and put him to death on the cross, they thought that he was dead and gone. Many of them thought he was dead and gone. But Jesus was able to withstand their power because he rose on the third day. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I will raise it up. His power will raise up his own body from the grave. Yes, the Father and the Spirit and the Son. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all raised the body of Jesus up from the grave. Jesus raised his own body up from the grave. Jesus is the creator of the world according to Colossians 1.16 for by him... And through him, uh, he created all things in heaven and on earth, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or power, all things were created by him and for him. He, the creator of the world, is also the redeemer of the world, who is also the judge of the world. And he will use his judgment 
on the day of judgment because he is a wrathful Christ. He is wrathful. One more passage to corroborate this belief is Revelation 19. Revelation 19 further describes the wrath of Christ, which he executes on behalf of his Father. Revelation 19, 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with the robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse, and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Utter and widespread devastation and destruction. The people of the earth, the kings of the earth, the soldiers of the earth, and their mighty horses, everyone thinks that they can overcome Christ when he returns. And Christ will make mincemeat out of them. He will put them strewn all across the landscape and he will call on the angels and to tell the birds, the birds of prey, to come, come, eat, and engorge yourself with all the flesh of these people who think that they are strong and mighty and powerful. No, their wrath against me is not stronger than my wrath against them. I will be wrathful. My fury will be demonstrated, and they will be utterly and completely destroyed and destroyed forever because they will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is the eternal retribution and destruction of 2 Thessalonians 1. This is the certain terrifying expectation of judgment of Hebrews chapter 10. This is the judgment of the wrath of God that sinners deserve. The generation of the wilderness experienced it. David's generation, many of those people experienced it. And in the first century, the apostles' generation experienced it. And even in our generation. This is the way it is. Because God is the same, sin is the same, human nature is the same, the way of salvation is the same. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Hebrews 13, 8. And finally, in Hebrews 3, verse 11, it says, They shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. What is the rest that he has in mind here? What is the rest? We know that they had hard labor, toilsome labor, as slaves in the land of Egypt. He promised them a land of goodness, a land flowing with streams, a fertile land, a land flowing with milk and honey, gardens, vineyards, olive groves, things that they did not plant, they would enjoy because it was a lush and plush land. They would have it all. And it would be like heaven to them compared to Egypt. This is what Moses was leading them to do. Finally, Joshua did so. Moses and Joshua led them in that path. But was it that God wanted them to have that rest as the end-all of everything? The end-all and be-all of everything? Or was that supposed to be a symbol and a sign and an illustration of heaven that they would not receive? We know that the generation of the wilderness... God said he pronounced the judgment on them in Numbers chapter 14. Because of your rebellion, you ten spies are going to die right now. And they died by a plague. Then the 600,000 rebellious soldiers, they were to die over a period of 40 years. Then God would raise up a new generation who would enter the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. But that generation... The 600 plus thousand plus all those they influenced, they all died in the wilderness, signifying the fact that they went to hell, not heaven. Hell, not heaven. Now you may say, how do we know so? There are many, many passages that will show this, but our apostle does so in chapter 4 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, he actually says so. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6, 4-6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. What does he mean here? He uses the examples of David and Joshua, and he also reminds us of what Moses promised them. Now, what was it? Moses and Joshua, did they not give and promise the land of Canaan to the people? Certainly they did. They were already in the land of Canaan by the time of Joshua, about 1400 B.C. So between 1400 B.C. and the time of David, 
They had lived there in the land of Canaan for 400 years. Certainly they had enemies. We always have national enemies. They had enemies, but they possessed the land of Canaan. It was in their possession, their control. In the time of David and Solomon, who reigned for 40 years each, they had control of the land. So why would David say, by the Holy Spirit, you people, my generation, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Why would David say rest in his generation 400 years after Joshua gave them the physical rest in Canaan? Except for the fact, as he says in Hebrews 4, that David is saying by the Holy Spirit that there is a Sabbath rest or eternal rest, a heavenly rest that is presented to every generation which the land of Canaan signified. The land of Canaan signified that all of us must not think that our works, our sinful works, whatever we can conjure up, whatever we can muster within ourselves will make us good people in the sight of God. But we instead should believe in the gospel just as they were preached the gospel and disobeyed it. We have the gospel preached to us and we should not disobey it because if we don't disobey it and have faith in Christ, we will enter the Sabbath rest that God has awaiting for us. We will enter heaven because we will be putting our faith in Christ and His righteousness. We will begin now to put our mind on heavenly things instead of earthly things. That's what he meant when he said, they shall not enter my rest. That wilderness generation died in the wilderness, signifying the fact that they were to experience eternal punishment. Don't be like that, he says. Enter his rest. Let's all be like that. Enter his rest. Strive to enter his rest. And one more thing to note. It took a long time and much affliction. Even for Moses, the man of God. The Christian life to enter the <laughs> heavenly rest is a journey of affliction. God intentionally put the people of Israel through affliction in the wilderness. He says, he let them be hungry and thirsty in order to test them to see if they would obey his commandments or not. So that you might realize that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3. He says these things, which is true of us too. So our journey from conversion to consummation, from the time that we are justified by faith to the time that we are glorified and with Christ forever in heaven. That journey is a journey of sanctification. It's a journey of rejection of sin. It's a journey of persecution and affliction. Yes, God will be with us. His Holy Spirit will fill us. His Holy Spirit will illumine us. His Holy Spirit will guide us. Yet, it is through suffering that we enter into glory. That is the rest that awaits. Let's believe in that through Christ our Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.